Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name's Nate Davison. I'm your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again on, uh, on this episode, one where we're going to be hearing from Maury Ostlin. Uh, she has quite the story, uh, and she's also got a book out called Unlovable she's going to share with us as well. Uh, just before we jump into that conversation with her, uh, I do want to share a little bit about Maury with you. Uh, she is a busy wife, mom, author, and entrepreneur, and she believes in living a life full of joy, gratitude, and good health. At the age of 40, Maury found Jesus, and she has never looked back. As a survivor of childhood abuse and trauma, she focuses on implementing the spiritual practices she used to overcome her own mindset barriers and to equip people to walk in freedom. Maury is the author of Unlovable, which she describes as a memoir meets how-to guide. Uh, She has obtained her bachelor's in psychology and her master's in theology, and she now helps others along their own life journey. And she's here on Grace Story Podcast. Maury, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on here. You have quite the story. You You know, we have people on that We'll share maybe this type of trauma or this type of trauma over here, but you have quite the collection as you start looking <laughs> back through your life story. Uh, and, and I don't want to give too much of away because you do have a book and you are going to uh, talk about some of that, but let's just go back maybe to where your story begins. And I know some of that started at the age of, of the young age of five for you uh, with some abandonment by your parents. Uh, can we just go back and start there? Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, right out the gate, I had a, it was a very wild ride. My parents weren't married and, um, you know, they came, my dad was a Cuban immigrant. My mother's family was immigrated from Ireland and they had a very fiery relationship. They got together really young. They had me at 21 and 22 and, you know, it was 1978. It was all about drugs and free love and um, not being married. They had a very wild lifestyle and my, both of them were high school dropouts, so it's not like they were very educated by any means. And so when my dad found out my mom was pregnant, he just started selling drugs because that's all he knew how to do. That's all his relatives who came from Cuba knew how to do. Um, not being educated, English was a second language. Um, and, you know, that lasted briefly. <laughs> he had a good run and then he got caught. And I ended up having to go to a foster home and he went to prison and my mom was, you know, addicted to drugs. So she was kind of off doing her own thing. And they left me with this family that I had never met at the age of five. And I didn't see him again until my senior year in high school. So, you know, I talk about that in the book. It, you use these coping mechanisms of basically not feeling, which is was my defense mechanism. Like that sting was so painful that I had repressed it. So much to the point where when I thought about it, I thought I had forgiven everyone, um, you know, and then that family, the man, the father of the that house ended up molesting me for years until I was 15 when his wife finally asked me uh, and I thought she knew. So I was like, great, we're going to get this out in the open. And I naively thought I'm going to tell her and it's going to stop and then we'll just live happily ever after. I told her and she said, I believe you in a way, but in a way I don't. And, you know, as a 15 year old holding that secret and that shame for 10 years, thinking it's your fault and something's wrong with you and not having anyone to share that with to help you 
navigate, um, it, it pierced my heart, really. And I remember, I don't remember a lot, and that's another coping mechanism, just sort of blocking everything out. But I do remember that day very distinctly. She walked out of my room, went in, told her husband, and he came out just, you need to tell her the truth. I'm like, no. I looked him in the eyes and said, you tell her the truth. And I just remember like commotion and I walked down the stairs. I walked out the door at 15 years old with the clothes on my back and didn't look back. And um, so then, you know, they bounced me around a couple other foster homes basically till I graduated high school. So it was really just never having any like love, any bond, any connection. And so I learned really just not to feel and not have emotions. And I thought since, you know, I reconnected with my parents my senior year in high school when my dad got out of prison. And I just assumed since I had rebuilt a relationship with my dad and I was able to talk about the abuse and my mother has since passed, but, you know, we worked, talked our things out as well. Uh, I thought I had forgiven everyone. And, you know, that trauma doesn't just leave you <laughs> when you don't deal with it and you don't feel it because you really do. You have to feel things to heal from them. And um, I got pregnant really young because I was that void that I had from not having a love or any connection or parents. I tried to fill with anything and everything from, you know, alcohol, uh, acceptance, being the life of the party, getting good grades, just anything that I thought would make people like me and accept me. That obviously doesn't work long term. The, the goalpost is constantly moving and you're constantly striving and it's exhausting. So I sought the attention of boys. I was promiscuous at an early age because I thought, oh, maybe they'll love me. Um, and then I ended up getting pregnant really young. I got married really young. I had two girls and then got married. And of course, that didn't work out. After a year of marriage, we got divorced because we were really young. Uh, and then I got with my current husband like five years later, and we waited quite a while, not intentionally, but we had some infertility issues. But then surprise, along came another child once my girls were in high school. Um, but, you know, we had our own problems. And here I was at 40 years old. I had gone to see a divorce attorney. I was done. I was filing divorce paperwork. And but now I had another child involved. So I was really beating myself up like you're 40 years old. You already went through this once. And here you are again in the same scenario. You're about to face your second divorce. And now you brought another child into it. Um, so I kind of hit rock bottom. And at that point, I had some friends who were way worse off than I was. They had gone into drugs and a whole party scene and they had restored their life through Jesus. And I saw that. And, you know, from afar, and it had been seven or eight years since they drank or done any drugs and they were happy. And the only difference in their life was now they had Jesus. And my husband knew I was done. He called them out of the blue and said, hey, will you come over? And all three of them are in recovery. My husband, I gave him an ultimatum and I didn't think he'd really do it, but he did stop drinking. He checked himself into rehab and stopped drinking. So here are these three recovering alcoholics over at my house, basically having an intervention, but I didn't know it. And I'm polished off a bottle of wine to myself. And I was like, look, I believe in God, but I'm not drinking your Jesus juice. Like whatever you guys are selling, I'm not buying. You can just leave. I'm done. I'm getting a divorce. And I had known this couple since uh, for like 20 years. So I was able to talk to them like that. And um, 
I just wanted them to leave my house. So I agreed to go to church the next day. I was like, sure. Yeah. Bye. Like go. And at the time <laughs> I was drunk too, that in my defense, I was agreeing to this just to shut them up because I'd had too much to drink and wanted them to go home. And the next morning, my husband's like, okay, let's go. I'm like, you're joking. That church is 45 minutes away. I'm not doing this. And he was like, well, you just go just one time. What do you have to lose? And I really didn't have anything to lose. Facing a second divorce with three kids at 40, I didn't have anything to lose. So I went to church. I could not tell you what the message was, but obviously something was happening in the spiritual realm with me because it definitely uh, touched my heart that day. And the next thing I know, I'm leaving that service. And my friend, his name's Trent. He, I thought he was signing me up for like a Bible study, but come to find out it was Bible college. And I didn't even know. I was probably <laughs> hungover, to be honest with you. So I'm like, sure, yeah. So that next Tuesday, I'm in Bible college. <laughs> it, 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 I couldn't even tell you that first class was about um, who you are in Christ. And it was stuff I had never heard of. It blew my mind. And all I knew is I wanted to learn more. And I just kept coming back. And three years later, I ended up with a degree in theology. And this is a girl who knew nothing. I knew there was God. I knew there was Jesus. And he died on the cross. I didn't know any of the in-between. And um, I really just felt like, okay, if this is for me and all God has all these promises for me, I want to know what they are. And all the people that were at that church and at Bible college and all the leaders that were around me just had this joy about them that I had never seen before. And, you know, I, by the world's standards, because I had to strive, I had all the things. Like, if you looked at me on paper, you're like, okay, she's got a house, she's got a, a good career, she's married. I checked all the boxes, but I still was completely miserable, very empty whenever I couldn't just be alone and sit with myself. I had to stay busy, always doing something to try and fill that void. And that was like, what I thought would make me happy. You know, I'll be happy when I have the house. I'll be happy when I have the career. I'll be happy when I have the the perfect marriage. But it, I would check all those boxes and then I would still feel empty. And these people had this joy about them. that I was like, what? This is different. I want that. And so I just started asking them. It's sort of like a little kid. Like, how do I get what you have? <laughs> Only I was a 40-year-old woman that on the outside, they were like, oh, you appear to have it all together. And it just goes to show people, like when I wrote my book, Prime Example, it talks about all my struggles as a child in, in high school. And I'm still friends with some of those friends from high school. And they're like, oh, my goodness, Maria, I had no idea you were going through any of that. And it just goes to show you don't know what people are going through. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors. People just want to put on this facade like everything's fine. But it's not, and they don't feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable and authentic to share what they're really going through. But what I found is the minute I started sharing, you realize there's so many other people on the other side of you sharing that are in the same boat, and they just need to hear that someone else is going through it too. Well, it's something, you know, I'm, I'm just making this up here, but it seems like with that initial abandonment that you experienced it seems like you would almost feel the need to always be putting up a facade of I've got it all together so that you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. So I'm, I'm the person to be around here. Let's get attached here. Um, so that you don't leave me as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, and honestly, it was like, I 
felt like I had to get perfect grades. So then my teachers would approve of me. I had to like be the fun girl at the party. So then everyone would invite me and want me to be around, um, you know, like have the attention of the boys. Like it, it was always like look perfect, dress perfect. Um, you know, workout when I got older, it was like workout. So I, I stay in shape because, you know, no one likes someone overweight. And it was just like all these rackets going through my head that I didn't even, you, I really didn't even realize I was having this inner battle I could, because it was so normal in my life and so normalized in my mind. So how did that, so you're, you're searching for quick attachments, uh, but then also maybe, you know, moving on quickly when people leave you like, Oh yeah, I'm good. If you're leaving, yeah. I didn't, I was fine anyways. Who are you? Yeah. I, you know, yeah. just another facade up. What is that doing to, to young Maury and her self-worth and, and who she thinks she is or trying to figure out who she is yeah. in those formative childhood, teen, young adult years? So I definitely kept everyone at an arm's length, obviously, because even my closest friends had no clue what was going on. Um, but I created my own identity. That's why I think at 40 years old, when I went to that first class of who I was in Christ, it was mind blowing to me. Sure. And it was something that, you know, six year old Maury would have, or even 16 year old Maury would have benefited from hearing. Um, not uh, who knows if I would have received it at that time, but I, the best way I can describe it is like TV sitcoms. Or like my normalcy. And then that creates a totally different, like I'm watching the Cosby show thinking this is normal life. This is what a happy <laughs> family looks like. Then you yeah. look at your own family and you're like, whoa, mine is way off. <laughs> well, and I'm sure c comparing, you know, comparing yes, yourself. That, that's, that's oh, the, yeah. the, that's the best way to be sad Mis all the time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I did, I kind of created this like, <sighs> And it's so hard to describe until you've like stepped out of it and can look at it. But because I didn't, I literally just thought that's who I am. This is who I am. And luckily I did have a, like a pretty outgoing personality. So I was able to make friends easily. And I will say that I did, did have a couple of girlfriends that had parents that were really good people. And um, a lady I even ended up living with for a year in high school um, that they were normal. And so I did have like a little glimpse of, oh, this is what normalcy looks like um, in adults that kind of one adult in particular, that the lady Renee that I talk about in my book that she did, she kind of had a feeling of what was going on and she did speak some life into me. And it really just goes to show all it takes is one person that cares, that shows to speak into someone's life to help them get through things. Um, but yeah, I just, I figured if I'm just the life of the party and, you know, be outgoing and be social, then I'll have friends and I'll always be around people because really that sting hurts most when you're alone with your thoughts. So I just stayed busy, whether that was like hanging out with friends. Um, I played sports until I discovered drinking. I was like, oh, well, you can't drink on Friday night and get up and play soccer at six o'clock in the morning. It didn't didn't go over very well. Um, and I didn't have any parents forcing me to stick with the sports. So um, but yeah, it was basically just be the life of the party and then everyone's going to like you. Well, we had we had an episode uh, uh where we talked to Dr. Barber about adverse childhood experiences or ACE scores. 
And some of those things that you go through, he explained as, as you go through and you talk about these experiences and you add up a number for each one, it makes you a uh, predisposed to things like addiction or yeah. health problems or, and some of those are, did a family member go to prison? Did yeah. someone in your family uh, struggle with addiction? Um, was alcohol present? Like all these things, a sexual uh, uh, molestation or abuse is on there too. So as you're going through all of this. And again, I, I said at the top of the show, your story is trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. And then you're in the foster uh, uh, system coming out of that age 18. It's not like they have some bridge for, okay, here's what you're going to do after 18 and we're going to help you with it. No, you're just, you're just out. So yep. you've had, you, you've mentioned some of the, the, the coping mechanisms you had, some of the support system you had, but not to jump around, my mind goes to as you're coming out of that with all this compounded trauma and then 18 hits, what are you thinking as you're like, you know, it's coming up and you're like, oh, yeah, what, what I literally like for Maury. So real quick, that ACE test, I took it because mm. I was um, I mentored for some teenagers for a little bit and they have you take it. So you kind of understand the teens that you're working with. And I believe if I remember right, it's like one to 10 scale. And I think I was right. a nine. I think I had everything yeah. but like one on there. And um, so it's funny you mentioned that. But I stayed in bed the entire day. I turned 18 because I turned 18. And then a couple of weeks later, I graduated high school. And so they keep you obviously till you graduate high school. But I laid in bed crying the entire day. Um, just thinking that like, what am I going to do? Did it feel like you were being abandoned all over again? Oh, for sure. For sure. And um, even though like the foster home I was in, it wasn't, she was a very sweet old lady, the last one I was in, but it wasn't, you know, it's not the same as actually having a mom or a dad. It was just like a house to sleep in where she fed me and, you know, she provided and that was about it. And um, I, so yeah, it was definitely, I got accepted to college because that's just what all my friends were doing. So, and I just thought, okay, well, th- this will help and prolong the inevitable and it's what you do. Right. And so I just went to an in-state college where I could get some, I, I don't even know if I got financial help to be honest with you, but I just went to the cheapest college I could and got I ended up getting my degree, but I got pregnant like my junior year in college, but I still finished because I didn't want to be seen as, you know, that young mom that dropped out of college and having, it was all just like perception based. And I also really, I didn't want to have to look my daughter in the eye and tell her she needs to go to college when mom didn't go herself. Again, it's just all the, that Cosby show was really deeply (laughs) rooted in my belief system. Like you have to go to college. It's just what you do. And it's not like any adult ever told me that it was just something that I imposed on myself. So with that, going through all of that, uh, and then you, you come out on the other side, how did your story through the foster system, abandonment issues, the, the sexual abuse, and you talk about your child, Moving in that direction, how did that affect your interaction with your child? That's a good question. So I do talk about this in the book. And I was detached because I didn't have Mm. that bond myself. And I remember my oldest daughter's Kylie, and she was colicky to top it off. So here I am, (laughs) 21. I just had a baby. All my friends are at the bar. And I'm sitting there because she would cry from midnight till four o'clock in the morning, every single night. 
And it was exhausting. First of all, you don't know what you're doing at 21 anyways. Your brain isn't fully developed to be able to handle a child at that age. And you don't have any family, friends. Like I had zero support. I was just winging it, just figuring it out. Like I'd figured everything else out on my own. And I remember just looking at her when she was crying and I would just start crying myself because I'm like, what were you thinking? You can't handle a kid. You can't be a mom. You didn't even have a mom. And one day I'm not lying in the middle of the night. It was one night in the middle of the night. I left her with her dad and I was like, I made a mistake. We made a mistake. We need to return her. That's how like cuckoo, like my mindset, it's also lack of sleep. But I was like, we need to return her. And he's like, where, Maury? This isn't Nordstrom. You don't just return a child. And I'm like, I don't know. Anyone would be a better mother to her than I am. And, you know, it was the enemy just creeping in, just wanting me to think that, you know, you're not cut out for this. You made a mistake. And I gave her to her dad. And I left in the car. And I drove to the beach. We don't live very far. We live about an hour, hour and a half from the ocean. And I remember just crying the whole way, thinking I made a huge mistake. I'm never going to be able to parent this child. You know, this little two-month-old infant. And then I came back. I turned around and came back. And she was sound asleep on her dad's chest. And I remember thinking, of course he got her to sleep. Even he's a better (laughs) mom than I am. (laughs) But, you know, at that moment, I, I found peace in the fact that I'm like, okay, Maury, your parents weren't the greatest. I'm not going to bash them, but they weren't the greatest. And I turned out okay. So if nothing else, I can't be as bad as my parents. So she's already got the advantage in that aspect. And honestly, I joke around with my dad, but that's the only thing that kept me going. I'm like, okay, I'm not as messed up as my parents. So she has to be better off than I am. And I just, I love, for the first time, I felt like a love that I had never felt before. And there's something bigger than just myself, like a bigger sense of purpose. Like I need to figure this out for her. You know, my 21 year old brain wasn't capable of thinking much further than that, but um, I just wanted to be a better person for her. So I hear, and I want to circle back to this as you're talking about having this kiddo um, and your own detachment from your emotions, which is a coping mechanism is a way of survival. Um, and then you also then at the end of that, talk about feeling mm-hmm. what, what did your 21 year old self do with feeling for the first time? Cause that had to be a very big mix of emotions, vulnerable. You're, you're, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. what is that like? And what did you do with it? Did that, was that a catalyst for healing for you or did it send you on a spiral um, or what was it yes like? No. So it was kind of like a double-edged sword, right? So part of me is like, oh, this is like this little person is totally relying on you and this is love and she loves you unconditionally. And, you know, I, I also talk about that in the book, but I feel like when she would just fall asleep on my chest and it was just me and her, and it was so peaceful that that was just like the greatest feeling on earth and something I had never experienced before. But at the same time, you know, I was going through the motions like burp, change, feed, repeat, burp, change, feed, repeat. So I felt like I didn't get the normal bonding that, you know, people that had normal nurturing might experience. Um, So, and the whole reason I started to write the book was honestly, so my daughters could kind of understand where I was coming from in all of this, because they knew a little bit about my background, but they didn't know, you know, a, a lot. And just to understand why they might think mom's a little crazy. And honestly, I... Then I had another kid very quickly. I was 10 months 
Kylie was 10 months old and I got pregnant again with Aaliyah. So I had two kids back to back. And I think multitasking the two of them was a lot for me. I just went back to work because it was easier for me to work than to be stay at home mom with two little people. I was like, I don't know how to handle two of them. One was okay. Once Kylie slept through the night, I was good. But then a few short months later, along came baby number two. And I was like, whoa, this is a lot. Um, and uh, I, so there was a lot of times where I was irritable and angry, like simple little things like them fighting would just set me off. And so it wasn't like, you know, kids fight and parents deal with it. And yeah, it's annoying, but I would just be over the top irritated with it. And how I dealt with it was just sending them to their room because I didn't want to deal with it. So I didn't like take the time to be like, okay, let's work through this. And this is how we, because I didn't have any model to pull from, I was winging it. And so there were, you know, that there's just little things like that, that I regret that I have to forgive myself for because I didn't know any better at the time. And, you know, we laugh about it now, but they, I didn't, teach them properly how to engage in relationships and conflict because whenever that came up I just was like nope not dealing with it go to your room that was my way of dealing with any sort of conflict not dealing That's, with it <laughs> you hi, you highlight so much the importance of uh, what a parent is in in a kiddo's life which is scary because as the father of three girls like I realize I'm still growing up myself and I'm figuring yeah. it out um, and yeah. then I'm what I'm, I'm imprinting on them, what not only God looks like authority looks like, and then how they're going to parent like, Ooh, yep. that's, that's quite a bit. It is. So <laughs> whatever resources you can get huge responsibility. That's what I tell people like sometimes, and I get it. So like when I was doing this forgiveness exercise where I realized I hadn't really forgiven my dad and my abuser and all the people involved, cause I thought I could talk about it. I've forgiven them. It was in one of our small groups. We did this forgiveness exercise, and I thought about the five-year-old Maury dropped off at that foster home crying herself to sleep that night, and I couldn't be sad for myself, but when I thought of my daughters or my son, who was that age at the time that I was doing the exercise, that's when I the tears flowed. That's when I felt bad because I was able to be sad for them, like imagining putting my own child through that, which I never would. And my heart broke for them if that would happen, but it couldn't break for myself. And that's how detached I was and how much I had suppressed those emotions that I couldn't even feel that for myself. And that's when I realized, Ooh, okay. <laughs> I need, if I can't heal for myself because I don't feel like I'm worthy or I care myself enough, I need to heal for my children because the reason why there were some of those gaps in parenting that, again, you realize will probably play out some sort of way in adulthood. Um, hopefully not. Hopefully they learn. Um, but hopefully they don't pick up on some of those bad parenting habits and pass them on to their children. Um, but healing for my son, and it's funny because I had him so much later, 14 years later, that I, the way I'm parenting him, and it is because I found Jesus, is so different than the way I parented the girls that they have to, they'll come over here and laugh sometimes about how different it is. They're just like, Oh wow. <laughs> Times have changed. <laughs> so with that, that understanding of, of your, your emotions and some of those parts of your story bubbling up with your, as you had your kids, 
was there ever a time that you you had someone you reached out to a professional therapist or or in any support group or anything like that that was helpful to you? I could say, I mean, I did, I got on um, some sort of, I don't know what it was, like Zoloft, after I had Kylie, whatever the, what do they call it? Postpartum depression. Mm, yeah, they gave yeah. me medicine after Kylie and after Knox, but really it was just like numbing medicine. So you didn't care about anything. The only thing that really helped is once I started going to church and figuring out like my identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. And then we got it. I initially got in with a small group, which I talk about in the book, especially if you go to Omega church, it's easy to just get lost in the shuffle and there's no accountability. And if you're someone like me on a Sunday morning, if the sun's out in the Northwest, that's a rarity. And I'm like, Hmm, church or boating church or golfing. There's so I'm so easily distracted and the enemy wants me distracted. He wants all of us distracted. So tapping into a small group that helps hold you accountable. They became like my family. They're like my new real friends that I can say anything to and they'll pray for me. They'll be there for me. Like they will literally drop everything. They check up on me. So having that support group was the game changer, not a therapist. And I did go off and on to a couple therapists throughout the years. Um, but nothing like long-term I, I went to one the because I was a foster child, they like assigned me one in high school, sure. which is funny because it's my now randomly it's my um brother-in-law's mom and (laughs) she showed up at a baby shower like 15 years ago and i'm like don't i know you and she's like yeah but i couldn't say anything i needed to wait for you to say something (laughs) full circle yeah i love that i love the importance uh that you put there on on community um because man healing healing of, of relationships happens in relationship with others um, and finding those safe spots. I I do want to give you time to talk about your book because I mean, it's, it's an interesting title. I I will, I will admit it's not one that you're like, you pick up and you're like, this is encouraged. This is going to be a book of encouragement. (laughs) I'm going to read unlovable right now, (laughs) but but it is intriguing. Uh, Maybe start with where, where does that title come from for you? The, the unlovable. So when I was looking at the overall theme of the book and what the root stem of my issues were, it was that I just didn't feel loved. I felt like I was unlovable, almost like I was broken. My parents dropped me off because I'm unlovable. This man is sexually abusing me now because I'm unlovable. I got a divorce because I'm unlovable. And it was just this reoccurring theme. I was trying to fill that void because I didn't feel loved. And it really was by figuring out who Jesus says I am that I finally felt that love and joy and peace and all the things I had been missing for, you know, the 40 years. It's like I was an Israelite in the wilderness for 40 years, really. And I finally was feeling all those things that I didn't even know were capable. I just remember thinking there has to be something more than this. Like my whole life, I felt that way. And then finally, I was like, oh, this is what it was. I have this eternal void because God made me to chase after him. I'm not made to chase after anything else. Just like we want our spouses to seek us and chase after us. God built us to seek after him. And that had been the missing piece the entire time. Wow. And, and in that book, you talk about the, the eight steps um, of 
overcoming and, and what helped you? Is there one of those eight, not because we don't want to give it all away. We obviously want people yeah. to get the book, but is there one of those eight steps that you would highlight and maybe walk us through uh, from the book Unlovable? Yeah, there's probably a couple different things that were really essential. The forgiveness thing was huge um, because, you know, I felt like, oh, all these people, even the first year or so, I'm like, all these people are like, I'm hearing from God. God told me this. God told me that. I'm like, was he talking to you? Because he's not talking to me. Like, <laughs> are you hearing this? And I, it, but it really was the, the unforgiveness piece is huge because it really does block you, your ability to hear his voice. And, you know, it took me and uh, the move, the book, a lot of people told me is more plays out more like a movie, <laughs> the way my, my life story goes. Um, so there's pieces in there, even in the marriage, like Chris and I, by the worldly standards, I don't, 99% or so of marriages that went through what we went through would be divorced right now. The only thing that saved us was our relationship with God and him healing our marriage. Um, and one of the pieces in there, I talk about just some of the horrific things we did to each other, but that enabled me like, okay, I'm forgiven for my part in that. And if I'm forgiven, just because, you know, maybe my parents are this sexual abuser, maybe because they sin differently, doesn't make it any less of a sin. A sin is a sin in God's eyes. And I'm forgiven, so I need to forget. That doesn't condone the ill behavior by any means. And it also helped me like empathize. People do what they do for a reason. So maybe he was hurt. He's no longer with us. He's actually the, my abuser is actually dead now. So it's not like I can go talk to him and be like, okay, you need to admit what you did wrong. And then I'll say, I forgive you. That as nicely as that would be, that's not a reality. And my mom had since passed. So I had to like work out this forgiveness with people that are no longer here. They're not in bondage by it. I was in bondage by it. And, you know, I, I read something once upon a time about a, a boulder in your driveway, right? And if you're trying to move on with life, if you're trying to leave your house and there's this huge boulder in your driveway, you can't. You got to smash that boulder. Well, that boulder's unforgiveness and it's holding me back. The rest of the world's going on merrily with their lives. It's just holding me back. So the the forgiveness, and I walk through like I'm more of a like tangible person. So that's why I did like tangible eight steps. These are exactly what I did to help me. And again, I haven't arrived, but I'm definitely a different person than I was. And this is what helped me with my healing. And I'm still walking it out every day, but I'm just glad. I wrote it out. <laughs> so when I do feel like, oh, I'm sliding or I'm off track, I can just refocus. And this is what I need to do. Boom, 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 boom. And I talk about renewing your mind because that's huge. Because mm, our yes. default mode is to go right back to our old patterns. When we're stressed out, default mode sits back in. And default Mori is go drink some wine, detach, like block everyone out. And it's not a good place to be. And unfortunately, when we fall back into that default mode, we're just hurting the people we love the most. It affects the people around us most. And those are the people we love. We don't want to be hurting the ones we love. So it all, it, those are the two that I would say. And then journaling. <laughs> I'll throw journaling out there too. That's the cheapest form of therapy is just getting your thoughts out on paper, which is really how this book totally took life was from my journaling. Well, I love that because those are three actionable items. Understanding uh, that forgiveness is for yourself and doesn't necessarily mean that there's restoration of relationships or there's uh, reconciliation. Those are different things. 
from forgiveness, but yes. understanding what forgiveness is for you. Journaling, absolutely. Amber, the founder of Grace Story Ministries, would she's all about journaling, so she would love that. Yeah. Uh, and then like the renewing part, that's that's something that you have to keep doing. Um, yes. It's it's an actionable item as well. So with that, I, I know we're we're running out of time here. Um, but where can people find, before I ask you one more question, where can people find more about you and more about your book and, and purchase your book? So I, everything is Maury Oslin, M-O-R-E-Y-O-S-P-L-U-N-D.com for my website and get the book there. I do a lot of one-on-one coaching and I'm more of a whole, I'm a holistic coach. So I really believe mind, body, spirit, it's all connected. So if you're not feeling good spiritually, it's going to come out in your health, your mental health, your physical health. So I do one-on-one coaching on all aspects, even if it's just nutrition um, or just spiritual. And on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, it's all Maury Oslin, at Maury Oslin. And uh, we'll put some of that in the show notes, uh, the links. So people, if you're if you're listening right now, you can just scoot down there and, and tap on that while you're listening to the rest of this episode. Just one more question for you before we let you go, uh, Maury. I like to ask this question of our guests just as we come to uh, the end of the episode. If there's one thing that you could share with our our listeners, something that's been on your heart lately, uh, something you've already shared, maybe from the book itself, um, something that you want uh, the listeners to take away from this episode, from Maury, what would that be? You know, for me, I didn't know, I wasn't raised in the church, so I didn't know what I didn't know. (laughs) And none of us know, you don't know what you don't know. So for me, it was really instrumental in getting into God's word and finding out what his promises were for me. And I've encountered people that have been going to church their entire life and they think they're on the opposite end. They think they know all the things. So they're kind of numb to it. And the thing for me that has been instrumental has been getting in the word every single day because we really do. Our, my pastor says we have a slow leak. We do. We forget. And that's where journaling comes into play. Like we forget all the amazing things that he has done for us and what he's turned our life around. So when we find ourselves in a hard spot, really do continue to press in and continue to get into the word and knowing what God's promises are for you. And again, renewing your mind with it. I have little sticky notes all over the bathroom. Like, you know, we each have our own struggles. Like maybe it's, you know, a negative self-image or anger or a a habit that we want to break. Just finding where in the word are those verses to help you counteract those thoughts. And we have to have that constantly at the forefront of our mind because we get bombarded by all the negativity in the world that convinces us of the complete opposite. So you really just have to keep renewing, keep renewing, keep refreshing your mind with God's promises. I love that. You know, sometimes I I find myself enjoying uh, interactions with people that did not grow up in the church uh, because there's a genuine curiosity, a genuine thirst and then there's like, oh, oh, what is that? I, I, I didn't even know that. Like, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And it, it's like watching your kids discover something for the first time. And it brings back the joy. It brings back the those first moments of interaction with Christ. And uh, so I, I, I truly enjoy that. Um, well, Maury, thank you for coming on Grace Story Podcast today. And thank you uh, for uh, sharing with us your story and being vulnerable with the Grace Story community today. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, to you, the listener, uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. 
Uh, until then, we hope that you'll continue on your journey of restoration. Uh, if you can, while you're in your app right now, go ahead and whatever you're on, subscribe and hit that bell for notifications so you don't miss an episode and head on over to YouTube where you can have uh, all sorts of videos ready at Grace Story Ministries on our YouTube channel. Uh, we hope that you'll come back in two weeks for that next episode. Uh, there's so much more that we want to share with you. We're happy to have you here. Like I say every time, there is no us without you. So get engaged. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks. And until then, we'll be praying for you on your journey of restoration. Restoration.